2: Yep, yep, ghetto you know, boys, is back and reloaded All in your mind, yeah, now deep-throated This is for the streets, the real, the railroaded The disenfranchised, the truth, the scapegoated And they know it, we speak the truth, so they quote it Cause we wrote it, the north, south, east coast It's the G.B. we keepin' your head bobbing It ain't no stopping And once the beat drops in then the system is so corrupt They throw the rock out their heads and then blame it on us it's don't get it twisted. On code, and we ain't dancing for no buttermilk biscuits. It's Willie D, y'all. Scarface is out. Collectively, we are the Ghetto Boys. Reloaded with another episode of information and instructions to help you navigate through this wild, crazy, beautiful world. In the studio, Wino. What's, What's up, up King? How you feel, man? Man, I'm blessed. I'm good blessed, to, good to see you, man. It's good to see you and you're
3: still looking young and healthy. Yeah, it's possible, man. What's the secret, man? What, what are you doing? Man, I eat clean. That's I it. eat clean, man. I don't I don't eat nothing that's not organic. Right. You know, no GMOs in my system and uh you know, I don't get high. I've never been high ever really? in my life. I've never drank nothing ever. Crazy as I was in the streets, you thought I was on everything, but...
2: You know, that's how people—that's what people thought about me when I was in high school. Uh, once I got out, I remember a few years later, I ran into this guy at a party, and he said, man, I used to think you was on drugs and stuff, man, because you used to fight so much.
3: Oh, man. Speaking of fighting, my first eye view of you was at the Gucci's. I seen you whoop two dudes outside, of the Gucci's,
2: right? <laughs> the club. Yeah, I was. I was pretty active.
4: <laughs> at Gucci.
3: And I said, "Man, this dude got some hands." Yeah. Now me, I didn't. I didn't go into the clubs till uh, till I started doing music. But back then, I'd just be in the parking lot, you know, bar and stuff. You know, right? That was my profession back then. Man, you had a very interesting life. Yeah. Very. Uh, yeah.
2: Exploratory. I mean, let, let's go back, man. Let's 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 go to the beginning. You grew up in Houston on the North Side. You grew up in a family of seven siblings. You're the youngest. Yes. What was that like,
3: man? The thing, man. The thing I kept hearing from my from everybody, my mama. The only person I ain't really hear from is my daddy, is you bad, like you, you're a bad kid. So I was fighting everybody in the family. When
2: know? they told you when you were bad, did you feel like you had to live up to that reputation of being bad?
3: No, <clears throat> I just, I was a different soul. My mama said I popped out an old man or something, you know? I, I taught myself how to ride a bike at three years old. I've been fighting a long time, just like you. Mm-hmm. I identify with fighters. You know, after we get through the physical uh, part of it, we realize we don't know, know how to fight through the elements, things that hold us down. But I fought everything, man. My mama said at six months old, I was kicked out of a daycare. <laughs> and, uh,
2: <laughs> how the hell you get kicked out of a
3: daycare, Bro. man? Everybody in my family held to it. And my, my brothers and sisters, they went to the daycare after school was out. <laughs> and my mama came there and they said, look, ma'am, we can't, we can't have y'all here. This, this little kid is damaging the other kids. They were losing people.
2: Man, how, how does a six-month-old kid get kicked out of a daycare? You can't even walk. I mean, what, Man, are, you, what are you doing?
3: That's all I knew was fighting.
2: You were scratching on the other, other kids, punching biting, the kids. Biting them, scratching uh, You know, my goddaughter works yeah. at a nursery, right? She works with little bitty kids. And some little girl, like I think she said a little girl was like uh, maybe three, a three-year-old girl yeah. bit her on the leg the other day. And oh, yeah. she had to take it.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I did some biting too. Yeah. But what I w- realized, Willie... See, a lot of kids that are labeled as bad or, you know, promiscuous and all that other stuff, they really, something in them just trying to get out. They're trying to figure out who they are. And some kids try to figure that out early, you know. That's why my life in the street started a lot more early than most people, you know, way earlier. Yeah. I remember um, at 12 years old sitting at the table eating dinner with the family. And I told everybody that I was going to move out. And I'll never forget my older sister, like, spit, <laughs> like, laughing at me. And they didn't even know I've already started saving. I was already plotting to get out of the house at 12. What Before are you, that, really. Where are you
2: getting savings from at 12 years old?
3: Well, I was hustling. Hustling. Uh, uh, what? Stealing little candy bars, selling them for 25 cents. I went from that to uh, stealing bikes, repainting them, and selling them. I always, I I never really spent money. You know? When you when you were stealing these bikes you know, and
2: repainting repain- them, where are you storing these bikes? At the house. And and your mom is not like asking questions.
3: <laughs> That's the crazy part. My daddy would tell her, "Look, he called a genie. Look, genie." A boy in there doing something. My mama always—I know he ain't. That's his friends or what. She will always cover for me. Mm-hmm. She was blind to my my bad. You feel what I'm saying? And uh, I probably would have changed earlier, but my my mother was an educated woman. My dad had never been to school. He grew up in Georgia. He had to work the farm. He was born in the late twenties, and um.
4: That's why your old soul. Your daddy was old
2: man. How old was your daddy when fifty when, when years you, when old you were when born? I was born? Fifty.
3: Yeah, he was still about that life. What
2: was he? Was he like a, a mobile guy? Was he active?
3: Yeah, my daddy was super active. Like my mama used to make jokes saying he never died. Like my daddy moved around like he was twenty five. Right. Like even when I, my last memories of him, he was moving around like me when we was doing stuff. He was never stiff, none of that. Right. So he I don't know what kind of gene that is. My wife say I got the same gene, but we'll see as I get older. But but what I wanted to say is, man, uh my daddy, you know, them old school ways, when we would act up, he would handle us. But the way he handled us used to scare my mama. Like, so she was like, nah, I don't want you whooping him no more. My daddy said, okay. When they get locked up, he named everything that happened to me and my brother. When they get locked up, when they get shot, don't come to me. I'm not, he said, I'm not using my money to bail them out of jail and don't come crying to me. He say, I know my bloodline. He said, you have to, excuse my language, you have to have kill these niggas to get them in line. And my mama stopped my daddy from, from disciplining us. Shoot. Me yeah, and my brother went crazy. So, y'all, once y'all knew that she had basically uh, <laughs> put up the, green,
2: the red light, Man, it was a wrap. It was a green light for y'all. It was all systems go. Y'all smashed
3: the gas. My brother was trapping out my mama's house out the window. Like, he was doing everything. Like, and I was into uh, cars, but that, that happened
2: a little later. But did your dad stick to his guns? Did he never try to discipline y'all after
3: that statement? One time. One time he called me grown man style. I was trying. I had some stuff I had to go out of town and go get. And uh, my mama was was doing her thing, trying to keep me at the house. She was talking to me. And my, my dad was in the backyard planting flowers for her. And, uh. I started talking crazy to my mama. That was the first time I did it in front of her. You know, I had my own money, had my own stuff, own cost, So I'm like, man, it's, it was all in my head at the time. Dumb teenager. And I think I said a cuss word or something. I didn't cuss a eye though, but I said a cuss word. And before I can even turn, my old man was probably 10 feet, maybe 15 feet away from me. I said that word in front of my mama in split second. He was on his feet. What was the word? <sighs> what did I tell her? I was so crazy back then, I got to think about it. I think I told her, I said, uh, I said, mama, I ain't gonna ha- you ain't going to treat me like a bitch or something like that. I think I told her that. I was talking crazy like that. And my old man got up and hit me with a right. Lifted my feet off the ground. I landed on my back. I never forget that. Busted my nose and my lip. He stood over me. He said, Look, don't nobody talk to my wife like that.
2: And did your mother defend you? Did she try
3: to get him off you? Like, no, he just hit me one time. Okay. You know, that was it. old man had a reserve about him. They don't make him like him no more. I think you know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. when men used to be used to be the strength of the household. You know, my daddy was built like that. He was hard as they come. He talked about walking his sister home from school and seeing people hanging from trees and stuff. And
2: And where was this?
3: Georgia, Coquit, Georgia, way from the tiny town in Georgia. And um, he was a blues guitarist too though. And he put that down to work construction to put my mama through college.
2: So is that where you picked up the music from?
3: You know, you know what's crazy, Willie. Really? I ain't know. I had no musical abilities until I, I ended up being homeless. And how did that happen? How does a hustler <laughs> become homeless? Oh man. Well, it's it's it's. Well, I'm a I'm a. And you were here.
4: like 18 at
2: the time, right when you were homeless.
3: Yeah. Yeah. 18, 18.
2: And this is after getting money.
4: You have yeah. me, you was a born hustler. Yeah. yeah. So how does that happen?
3: Man, um, I'm a backtrack. My brother and them, you know, they got into the robbery game. I was
4: young, and uh he came in one night and dumped money on the bed. And uh when I saw that. And I seen how my mom and them was
3: struggling. I said, I got to get to this real money, you know. And I always viewed myself. My brother was smart, but I, I felt I was smarter. He was smarter in the books, but I was smarter in strategies. So I, uh, I started requiring different aspects. I didn't like selling drugs. I did it one time. I sold probably one rock. Uh, off Kentucky and Brewster right there in Field Ward and the police chased us. And I said, nah, this too slow and too, too,
4: you know, predictable.
3: So I started going to the junkyard teaching myself how to steal cars. And I would go to these little, these little hubcap spots, you know, you used to have them little the cap spots and asking them, you know, if I brought them this, what they would pay me. And I kept going around doing that till I found I hit a hard lick in of Texas. And it was a guy who was selling his parts back to General Motors. And he needed, he needed some real stuff. So long story short, at the age of 14, I had a warehouse in Humble, Texas, that I was busting cars down, selling them back to him. I was making roughly, from 14 to 17 years old, $1,000
4: a day, and- And what are you doing with this
3: money? Nothing, I just stacked it. Okay. Everybody called me a Mazda to this day. They say, you don't spend no money. When I got in the music business, there was a joke going around. Up top, they used to call me a black Jew. And I didn't understand what they meant by it until I started, you know, they were saying because I don't spend no money or whatever. I don't go out and buy jewelry and all that other stuff. But, um, so mm, let me fast forward through that. You know, you in the streets, you're doing a bunch of crazy stuff. First time in the club, the police brought me in the club. The Gucci's at that same blood bucket. And it was because they saw me about to steal the car and they got me before I was stealing the car attempted burglary, but uh, I was, uh, man, where I wanted to go, This my story is so intense, I'm just going to take my time and just tell you like this, from 14
4: to 17, man, you're doing all that dirt in the
3: street, at some point, karma going to come and get you. My mom, she did so many things, bro, to try to keep me and my brother out of trouble. Like I said, she was educated. So she moved out of the ward, moved to Cinewood, moved out of Cinewood, moved to Humble. When we moved to Humble, it was probably five, six other black families in the neighborhood we was in. Other than that, it was just, you know, pretty much number of white boys or whatever. So I learned, like I hung out with white boys and learned how to ride four-wheelers. They were cool with me one day out there I'm out in the field with him we hear this pop and when we heard it I felt like somebody hit me with a brick so I boom I went like that and I was going to start swinging on one of the white boys and they're like hey look at your head and it was blood coming near my temple so man I ran
4: to the house uh my mom took
3: me to the hospital and they removed a bullet. It was a white man, seen me playing with other little white kids and he shot me. My mama. Shot you from where? Like where was he? It was a distance. <clears throat> he was at another house? He was in his own house. He was He, Did he was shoot you with a scope? I don't know if he had a scope or not. The boys, the, the white boys said, I seen him, he's over the fence. They pointed, you know what I'm saying? I ran to the house because all this blood coming out of my head. So, the bullet didn't go through my skull. It just cut the skin and they had to, like, pull it out. And for those who
2: don't know, Humble is just north of Houston. Yeah. Um, it's like, a, basically, a suburb of Houston, but you can't tell people who live there that,
3: you know, the people who've been living there forever, mm-hmm. they think it's a real city. But go ahead. <laughs> and, um uh, My mom called the sheriffs over there, man. and You know, my my little white boy friends, they went to the house, showing the sheriff his his house, all this stuff. My mom come, I came. And um, my mama didn't let me get out. She let me stay in her car. And my mama told me this story. She said she went in the house. And the, the, the little white boys, I deed him as the one that shot me. She went in this house and she seen all this army, memory of Delia. And as the sheriffs would questioning him, he's like, oh, you know, I was just taking some pot shots at my gate. I don't know how I got, you know, like he was target practice in his backyard with a rifle. Really? So, the sheriff's turned to my mama and asked her, did she want to press charges? And my mama noticed there was a tattoo on both of the sheriff's fingers. My mama was, you know, my mama from Fifth Ward, period. So, she, you know, and she noticed both sheriffs had the same mark on their hand as the dude who shot me. And she decided not to press charges because of fear of her safety for us. You know what I'm saying?
2: That ain't even a fucking question. Do you want to press charges? You got a motherfucker who just shot somebody. And your job as a so called peace officer is yep. to keep the peace, is to go in and make the arrest, eliminate the threat yep. from the citizens of the community that you serve. Yep. Whoever those cops were, let me go on record and say your mama should be embarrassed
3: and your daddy should have pulled out. Go ahead. Oh, really? So that was my first experience with just, you know. How did you get shot? To- that's what I'm going to go into. Hold
2: on, hold on. Before you answer that, I need to get back to the bag. I don't want to go too far away from the bag. How did you blow the bag and end up homeless?
3: Well, let me get through that.
4: Because you're, 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 you're how old at this time when you got shot? You're
2: the
3: like first 17? The first time I got shot. Or the, the first time? The first time I was, I was probably about 12 when I got shot.
4: Yeah,
3: damn. Yeah, I was young. Okay. That now that's the shot by the white man. We're going to get into the getting shot by the brother. Did you get shot? What came first? The the second shooting or the
2: blowing the bag? What came first?
3: The second shooting. Okay, it's, okay, it's mixed, let's talk it's about this. Let's talk right, about bet. that. All right. I had this uh See, I'm, a, I'm an inventor. I'm a thinker, man. I always think ahead. I always try to plan, strategize, things of that nature. And I wanted, I wanted to get more cars to make more money. So I had got this, this klepto out of uh, Kingwood. It was a white boy. He stealed for the fun of it. Daddy was a doctor, all this other stuff. But he was the only one who could steal in broad daylight. Never got caught. Broad daylight going to these cars. People just walking right by him. He popping these cars. We had to go at night. Or it had to be parked in a garage or somewhere, you know. So the guy was such a klepto, man. He ended up stealing his neighbor. This is how how it started. He ended up stealing his neighbor's motorcycle. Next door neighbor. I ain't talking about two, three doors down. Next door neighbor and paint it. <laughs> so the neighbor, he ain't never been in trouble before. So the neighbor called the cops, they take him down, scare him. And he ratched my whole thing out. My, I ain't had nothing to do with the motorcycle. And I had that in the back of my mind. I'm like, you know, I figured I needed to either move my little warehouse or something at some point. So anyway, that's when they started.
2: Investment. You had a warehouse? Yeah. And how old were you at this time?
3: I got it at 14. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
2: I gotta ask this question because somebody's out there thinking it. <laughs> how in the hell does a 14-year-old get the
3: credentials to rent a warehouse? Uh, at that time, crackheads. I had a lot of stuff because of crackheads. Okay. Apartments, all kinds of stuff. You can do a lot of stuff, you don't. Know? You just use somebody older. I told y'all
2: this guy has an interesting (laughs) story. His journey is rather colorful. Uh, Go off,
3: man. It's colorful, brother. And um, so, in between that time, they they watch me, they investigate me. I had a number job. You probably ain't heard that terminology in years. (laughs) You know what a number job is, right? Yeah. I had a number job. And it was clean, boy. Clean regal. And I just I had this new girlfriend I wanted to stunt on her. So man, I had it cleaned up. And I usually don't do my number jobs like that. I hold it, I sell it and somebody else buy it or whatever, but I wanted to stunt in this one. And uh and they were already following me. They already was like clogging up on me. And man, they pulled me over. When they pulled me over, that's when I they took me down, and I found, found out that the dude snitched me out and all that stuff. They went and just got everything. In between that time, you know,
4: I got out. I was out on bond, and um, I went to—I uh,
3: had one of my homeboys pick me up, and I went to this, this club off of Kirkendall in 1960. It was a teenage club called Kokomo's. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that one. But uh, that was the only club you could go to and, and run into everybody. Like Mexicans, white boys, though black dudes, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. So my partner took me over there. I'm looking for this girl, the same one I was, I was trying to stunt on. But she the type, she ain't faithful like that. So. I knew it. I knew she was kind of wild. but So I went looking for her. Went to the club. The club was closed. So we went down the street to this little stop and go. Everybody used to hang out over there. But usually it's a huge crowd. This time the crowd split. Now, this 196 in Kirkendall, you don't get that gangsta over there. Like, you know, we used to slap dudes and pull them out their car over there. So I'm like, we pull up right in the middle of it. I look to the left. There's some dude holding a chrome pistol, pacing, talking real loud. I'm like, that's reckless. And I look to the right, and I, one of my uh, partners from the hood was over there. So I walked over to him. I said, man, what, what's going on? He said, man, these dudes want to fight over some broad. And I seen him. He was leaning on his car. He had a pump shotgun behind his leg. Excuse me. And I know him. He will use it. So I already knew it was going to be all the way live. So I asked him, did he see this girl? Her name was Keisha. Ironically. And uh, I'm heading back to the car because I know I know this dude is real wild. So I'm heading back to the car. And uh, I'm about to get in the car and he said something to me. And I said, huh? I don't even remember what he said. And when I went back this way to get in the car home bar with that chrome pistol, came run right over the car. Bah! Bust me in the face. The bullet knocked me off my feet, Willie. I'll never forget this, bro. You know, people, people say theatrical stuff when they, they talk about life and death. But the The only way to describe it is the way you know it. When I, I hit, I fell on my back, man, and I knew I got hit, but I didn't know I got hit. It's like my mind was going in reverse, like trying to catch up to what actually happened. And I, I staggered to my feet, man. And I heard a voice say, walk into that stop and go. And I remember staggering to the stop and go, now, everybody busting. Now you know what you do when you bust and you get down low. You I'm walking straight up, right in the middle of all this. And I'm staggering to this door, man. Not another bullet touched me. There was so many bullets raining out that night. It was some apartments across the street. A bullet just went in an apartment, hit somebody in the stomach. I remember grabbing the door with my left hand, man, and I couldn't see my left eye. But when I opened that door up, the dude at the counter was like this because blood was just spewing from the door all the way to the counter. And mentally, it was slowly catching up how serious what was going on. Like, I didn't see people get shot, you know what I'm saying? And I remember stagging on my, I mean, Getting on my knees, man. Took my shirt off, I, and I wrapped my whole face up and left my mouth out, cause blood was just pouring out my mouth. The bullet went through my cheek, it shattered my cheekbone, broke my nose, and came out between my eye. And all this was open. And that was the first time I ever ever prayed. And I remember, I remember telling God, I said don't let me die this time cause prior to then you know I got shot but before that a dude put a tech nine on my head in the jam cause he thought I stole his girlfriend one of these hotheads man you know I gotta interject real quick you said you asked God don't let me
2: die this time or you told God don't let me die this time that's what I said that implies that you died before the way you said that (laughs) So, on what date did you die? Before, I mean, did you die before?
3: Like, no, no. I, I,
2: mean, it, I you know, hey, man, you know, you know, your life, man. You know, I, it, it, I it wouldn't was, be surprised. It was that day.
3: <laughs> it was that day I left and came back. But prior to then, I'd have been in shootouts. One of my partners, after twenty some years in prison, he get out. I bring some young dudes to the hood, to the ward, to meet him. He still started telling the story. I don't even know what the story is. And I was in the story. And he said, Don't you remember you were running, you dived over the car, and you were shooting two pistols? I'm like, "Will it's so crazy, man, to think, think how wild I used to be, what well, my mind was. Ghetto Boys Reloaded Podcast. will be right back after the break. Mm-hmm.
2: Talk about blowing the bag. How got, did you
3: blow this bag? This, this is how it blows the bag.
4: <laughs> and become so, homeless.
3: Right. So boom. It's all wrapped up in this. So I'm, I'm dying. At this point, I'm in the stop and go, man, and I'm getting very, very tired. I'm afraid. But at the same time, I'm trying to calm myself down. Because I know what happens when you bleed out. People coming in there, man. I'm hearing girls crying, people falling on my blood. I was bleeding so much, the pants I had on was dry-rotted, bro. When the ambulance got there, they said they couldn't transport me. They had to call life flight. And between that time, I flatline once or twice in between that time either once or twice and when i got into the when they picked me up in the helicopter when i woke up in the hospital doctors and they gave me some understanding they was talking about i shouldn't be living based on the amount of blood i lost
4: so fast forward to that
3: Nah, the police just took all of what I had, right? Now, in that warehouse, I had a
4: little stash for my bag, but it was in the back under some stuff.
3: When I got out, when I went back by there, all of that stuff, was scraped out of that. Like they, they search everything, like for parts and all this other stuff. And I had this, like, this piece of, uh, I want to say steel, like this here, laying on some dirt, on some ground, on on, on the ground in the very back of the warehouse because it was dirt. It was real ragged. It was dirty. It wasn't a cement floor, it was a dirt floor with a little tin around it. And um, I knew that they, didn't, they got my money. Now, When I got out the hospital, I paused for a minute. And I was wondering, man, you still here? You still here? You know, you get that consciousness of, well, maybe I need to try something different. But I got out there and People start calling me Brad Name, Scarface and all
4: this stuff. And being young, it still it kind of went to my head, but I um I
3: lost myself for a moment. And I ended up doing worse than I was before to try to get back up to where I was. It's months after coming out the hospital, I wasn't even fully healed. Fast forward p- past that, end up getting locked up, facing fifteen years in prison. For what?
4: That was uh, that was locked up for? Um, uh,
3: another auto theft charge. That was another auto theft choice. 15 years for auto theft? That, they, must was, they must have been
2: trying to tie you to a string of uh, yeah. some type of conspiracy or something.
3: It was grand theft. And they was trying to get me for masterminding crimes. Right, right. So,
4: so. So you end up homeless. And where are you, where you actually sleeping
3: at? Fourth Ward. It was a place called the riot center right off of Taft Street. I think it was right off of Taft Street. If you come out off of uh, uh, Allen Parkway, go down Taft. It, it was a homeless shelter, but a lot of teenagers, runaway teenagers would go there from River Oaks. You know, little kids on drugs and stuff like that. So I would go around there to eat. But the reason I was homeless because I refused to go back to my mama's house. You know I, did you
2: refuse to go because you felt like uh, you couldn't abide by her rules and your no. father's rules, or you didn't want to go because you felt
3: that you would be rejected? No, it wasn't that. My mama was mad at the whole whole situation that I did there, but it's because I didn't, I didn't want her to take care of me. Plus, my brother was doing too many things over there. I didn't want to get into it with him and end up back in jail. So, um... Uh, and, you know, they call it jailhouse religion. So I called God out on everything the Bible said. So I said, you know, you're supposed to provide for me. You're supposed to show me what I'm supposed to be doing. All I know is the streets. I ain't never worked for nobody. To this day, I really never work for nobody. And what I would do, just off the whim, I would rap about my problems. Just and I would rap to God about my problems and my depression and all that other stuff. This is why you're locked up. No, this is at the. This is this is after release. Okay, after after my homeless and um, these you know fourth world Mexicans used to come around and be like, "Man, your voice, you sound chopped and screwed. You sound screwed." And uh, I just kept rapping, to one day. Uh, Kevin Bass from the Houston Astros. I ain't even know who he was, to be honest. This dude pulled up, I guess, to give money, to drop off some clothes or whatever the case. And he seen, I guess, seen this one black dude out here with these Spanish dudes out in front of the place. And he, he paused for a second and listened to me rap and everything. And walked back into place and left. The lady that worked at the desk came outside. And said, hey, you know that dude? I said, no. She said, that's Kevin Bass from the Houston Astros. He just wrote you a $1,000 check. And click. I said, well, this is how I'm going to make money. Rapping. And I wasn't good at it, Willie. I wasn't good like y'all. But I I, I took that $1,000 and uh, I started getting those Kmart tapes. You know, the ones with all that air in it. (laughs) And, uh... I would go to this church I was going to at the time and um, clean it up at night and use their PA system to record. I didn't even have no beats. And I was selling those tapes for $2. I remember the dude in the hood say, man, you expect me to buy this? ain't no beat on this. I was shoving it down people's throat until I could like flip that and flip that till I started meeting producers. They were WAC producers. I was still spitting on the WAC beats, recording. And I just kept doing my thing till, uh, you know, I started getting on as new wine.
2: And, and this is 1996?
3: That's 96. That's 90, yeah. That's in between 94, 95. As
2: okay. So, but you put your first,
3: my first album, album out, out in 96, 96, right? Yeah. And
2: you have 17 albums to date. To date. Are you still making money off those albums?
3: Yeah. They're still making a little money.
2: Yeah. Do you you own most of them, don't
3: you? I own all of them.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I, I said, I, I gave you credit for at least owning most of them because I know you've always been independent.
3: Well, see, even even the first label I signed to, I pr- I produced, I put all that stuff together and we were supposed to do a, a P&D deal. Mm-hmm. And the dude tricked me. You know, Nice little Christian brother. Hey, I'm your Christian brother, you know. Put me, when I, when I went to a lawyer and let a lawyer see their contract, he said, man, that's the most demonic contract I've ever seen. It was horrible. Dude flat out lied. And he has never paid me to this day. That album. So you're trying to say that <laughs> a
2: Christian did this. Absolutely. A man of God. Absolutely. That's preposterous. I, I don't believe it, man. I don't believe it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, That's so he got so-called you. So-called man of God. Yeah, okay, got so, so-called man of God. So he got you. And so how do you restore your faith? How do you end up not being jaded to get to a well, point to where you wanted to continue?
3: Well, I realized that the contract he set up, it was an artist contract. It wasn't even what he said. I didn't, I didn't know nothing about no contracts and no lawyers back then. I took a man, tried to take a man at his word. And if you're a Christian man, well, maybe you're honest. I was taught in the street, you don't trust nobody. But when you come in a Christian world, oh, you can trust everybody. Da, da, da. That ain't true, Willie. Really. And um, he got me. so I literally called a dude up and I say, you know, either you pay me
4: or I'm coming to see you
3: flat out. And the dude was like, you know, what if I let you off? Just let you out the contract. I still wanted my money. But I knew in order to get that money, I was going to put my hands on it. And I was willing to do that, but I didn't want to put, I didn't want the trouble that came with it and I already had a family by then. So I came up, I said, you know what? I got a couple of songs I didn't use. And it's a whole lot of other little Christian artists that's trying to do what I'm doing. And what I was doing wasn't even really heard of. Like, how can you be talking about the streets and and God? The only thing that wasn't in mind is I wasn't cussing. And I would talk about God and what I used to do. So I got a whole bunch of other little dudes and we put a compilation together and it was called When Thugs Fly.
2: Which is what you named your movie. Exactly. Yeah, tell
3: us about the movie. Well, actually, it's a documentary. My wife been asking me to do for a while. I've been avoiding it. You know, I'm not. Even now, Willie, as cool as we are, because the camera's on me, and we just sitting here talking about my past. It's a, it's a struggle because of of the stuff that happened to me. You know. How they drugged me through the media and all the other stuff that took place. So, but my wife was like, your story is too intense. And usually when I start telling the story, I'm all over the place. I'm sporadic with it. She knew how to put it together where mm-hmm. it comes out the way it needs to come out. What's yeah. the most interesting thing in
4: that film that you think that people will find compelling about you? Um...
3: fact like I'm, I'm not I'm not like anybody else I'm not like any other rapper I'm not like any other dude from the streets but what makes you not like those guys cuz you know people say well I'm not
2: like that I'm not like that like tell us why you're not like that you know how, how is it that you're not like these other guys
3: my perspective man how I look at life uh, I was telling somebody the other day, I've never wore a pair of Jordans in my life. You know, one dude told me I did the Cardinal Hood sin. And the reason I never wore them, cause I, cause everybody wanted them. I've never followed the crowd. Never was interested in the crowd. I don't even know what peer pressure is. I just wasn't built with that bone, you know? And, um, I've almost gotten fights cause jokers just wouldn't believe that I've never been high. Or don't drink. Even my own lawyers don't believe it.
4: Now,
2: which brings me back to your name, Wino. How does a guy who's never been high, (laughs) who has never been inebriated, name himself
3: Wino, and then make it work? Actually, a friend of mine, who this dude named Black Seed, uh, he was getting into rapping around the same time I was, and he thought it was interesting. I didn't have a rap name for a minute and, uh, he didn't have one. So I named him black seed and he, he named me new, wine. He said, because new wine in the Bible was a street name for the spirit of God. That's what they, that, that was where you get the word new wine. If you ever hear new wine in in, in the church, they are talking about the spirit of God. So it stuck. And I went from New Wine as a rap artist to Wino as a producer. How do you get
2: Wino out of New Wine? I got the wine, but where you get people, people started? How you get started me that. O the wine old on there, man. What a
3: Wino! Just, well, just, <laughs> just saying it. Wino, Wino. So it just stuck, man. Okay. So when I went from the Christian thing and started doing the street music, I just went with Wino. So you started off with the
2: Christian music and then you went into the street thing. Then you went back to the st- Christian thing with
3: Evander Holyfield, right? Well, no, I was, I left after Evander Holyfield. After we hooked up, I was done so with we, Christian, okay, Christian so Evander, the Christian hip hop.
2: the Evander Holyfield partnership was your foray into
3: Christian. Yeah, I was trad- a, I was a Christian hip hop artist at the time. Okay. Yeah. Ghetto Boys Reloaded Podcast. We'll be right back after the break.
1: Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, Along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.
0: Moments like my daughter telling me a new joke mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or MBC, which is breast cancer that is spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrance, Palpal Cyclib, tests, diarrhea, hair thinning, or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite.
2: Tell us about that relationship that you had with Evander Holyfield and how it came to be.
3: Man, I ran into him, these kids that kept asking me to come to this little meeting they had. And when I showed up, everybody was there. Like, and this was like a little kid's apartment, like a regular apartment complex in Sugar Land. It was football players. Everybody was there. And uh, from that, they did this outdoor thing. And that's and I performed at it, and the band of Holyfield was right there. And we shook hands. We were cool. And then I was in Atlanta and I bumped into him. And he said, Man, I like your music, man. I want to talk to you. Da. Because da, da, da. he was thinking about uh starting a label and he wanted me to help him build a label. And that's how it started. Right. But how did it end? Willie, uh, <laughs> really, you man. Well, you know, Holyfield is a boxer. You know, boxers are stubborn. You're a boxer yourself. <laughs> you know. Okay. And I'm a fighter too, so it's just stubborn. So, and I guess, like, me and him used to argue so much like we'd be at the airport arguing everywhere arguing people used to think he's gonna knock me out but i ain't the type to kiss your butt i'm gonna tell you if it's wrong you're wrong so we get in arguments so many arguments but he had hired these dudes that i knew was snakes and my money was mixed up in it and he hired them to run the label yeah oh i how they was coming in, I already knew they was going to bend him over, period. And me and him went back and forth because my money's tied up in this. I said, bro, so I had to sign off on, on it. And in between me signing off on it, he said, man, if this if this goes bad like you said, I'm going a, I'm to a handle your end of it. Now me, I had a probably a hot M in in the bank. He had 150 M's. So I'm like, okay, that's my Christian brother. <laughs> so man, look at here. Them boys, what them boys did to did to him was crazy, man. They straight robbed him. They, they did more than what I thought they were gonna do.
2: How many so- how many M's you think Holyfield lost in that deal?
3: All together, he, he lost in the music business a little over ten million.
2: Oh wow, that's yeah. grossly over what I thought it was. I thought it yeah, was a over I, I heard
3: million. the number like three, four, something yeah, like well, that. he got he got got by two people, two sets mm. of people, and I warned him on both, which is crazy. But so when that happened, he didn't fulfill his his thing, and that's when we fell out. Mm-hmm. You
2: know. Are y'all still cool? I mean, did y'all get back cool? Or
3: when's yeah, the last we, time you we, spoke with him? I went to his uh, his stature revealing. I'm real close to his family too, so we cool, right? You know, I at some point you just chalk it up, man. I don't, I don't want to be at odds with any of my brothers. Yeah,
2: but you know? but Holyfield always came off as a good dude to me. Uh, but just on the business side, y'all yeah, just he, didn't, is he is couldn't a good work dude, it out. The
3: business side, okay. You know, yeah, I guess what it is. I got you. So So in
2: 2014, you have a situation with uh, your wife at the time, Iggy Azalea, right? This is 2014,
3: right? Uh, you hit the headlines, you hit the headlines. I gotta that's, speak vague on it. You you can say that name. It's, I it's, can't say that name.
2: So, is there still a pending lawsuit, uh, litigation, no. or something going on?
3: No, what? it was all done away with. We. So why do you, why do you have to spe- be vague about it? Well, because oh, because it's a it's still a gag. order. There's a gag place. order. It's that's still in place.
2: I mean, how real is old gag order, though? I mean, you know. Like, you know, I mean, you're like, hey, you know, I hear about these gag orders all the time and people break them all the time and nothing really happens. So,
3: you know, I already know, man.
2: But yeah, you know, OK, so you and, and, and you, you tell me about that relationship. Uh, you know, all I know is what I what I read. I have never Let me spoken tell you to about you about it.
3: Let me tell you about a girl I met. OK, that was from Australia. From Australia. I met her through. Uh, I met this girl through uh, Mr. Lee. OK producer. Mr. Lee. Shout out to Mr. Lee. That's my boy. Mr. Lee was uh, working on this this label. Uh, These people hired him. Was bringing him in to run their label and be the production in. And he called me because he know I'm a producer as well. So I go over there and I see this tall woman in in the you know, sitting up over there. She just sitting by herself. I asked Mr. Lee what's going on. You say, man, look here. This girl's been hounding me for five years on MySpace. And Mr. Lee was kind of standoff this Shibata. And I, I guess he could see what I couldn't see. I don't know what you know what the reason was, to be honest. And um so the, the people who own the label, they took us all out to eat. And they brought her with them. You know, she was like a string along. And while we were there eating at this restaurant, people come banging pans and singing happy birthday. we looking around. They were singing happy, happy birthday to her. And I guess her mother knew where she was. And, you know, it was her birthday. And, uh, everybody asked her how old she was. And, uh, She said she she just turned 18, and Mr. Lee looked at me like, I said, well, let me me just see what's up. So I started uh, talking to a man, and uh, she wanted to be a superstar, wanted to be an artist. And I said, you look like a model. You need to go that route. And she was like, everybody keep telling me, no, I want to be a, you know, long story short. She, she was down here, we hung out, got in a, a relationship, I understood her, I'm not, I'm not speaking negative, I know I'm a weird dude, really, I'm considered weird, so I can relate to the weirdest people, and uh, I seen the talent in her. What'd you find weird about her though? Her style, you know, seeing where I'm from, you know, how she looked at life, the whole nine. It was just real intriguing to me, you know.
2: For example, how she looked at life.
3: <laughs> you go dig, baby. Let me see. Let me see Uh, the opportunities, the way she looked at opportunities. It gave me another perspective. Because see, the way we look at opportunities... We have to look at opportunity. We know we gotta go hard, but we know also we gotta jump through hoops. We gotta fight off stories. It's a whole lot of stuff we gotta deal with to get to through that journey. This person just had a free mind in it. Like, like she knew exactly that she could do this. And it was it was nothing in front of her. And I wasn't used to that around me, put it that way. Now, yeah, was, freedom.
2: Na, na, now was that freedom because she was a Caucasian woman or was it because she just had supreme confidence in herself?
3: I think it was because of both. It was because of both.
2: Well, at least she was honest.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when <laughs> someone, when somebody don't deal with what you deal with, yeah. it is what it is. So, okay. So, you know, things took off or whatever. And, um,
4: she started living with me. Next thing you know,
3: I moved to Atlanta to get more work, you know. It was drying up around here and I was, you know, doing producing, so I moved to Atlanta, she moved with me. And I started like sitting up with stuff like, uh, trying to get on reality shows and modeling agencies and all kind of stuff. And, and it became a headache, Willie. You know, it became a headache. I'm used to a one-man band. It was a two. It was, now it was me and her. You feel what I'm saying? So I decided to send her back,
4: you know. To Australia?
3: To Australia.
4: Where did the rumor come that, from
3: where people were saying that she was 17 years old when you married her? Uh, That was a plot. That was a plot to try to make me look bad. Mm. That's all it was. She definitely wasn't 17. Yeah. So how did you, how did she get into the
2: music? I thought that you brought her in and started working with her on the music. I did.
3: You were
2: the first one who started working with her when it came to music, right? Developing, yeah. So how did you feel like once you introduced her to the game and, put her down and help develop her style and all of that stuff and then she got on and
3: was like kick you to the curve, like didn't no, want to let you get it was, in it was no action. problem it was no it was no issue they hit me up cause somebody Jimmy Iovine was trying to sign her, and they hit me up and they said hey I think there's Wino's artist or girl or whoever she is or whatever so I told them I said no problem I ain't tripping on the contract I ain't tripping on none of that stuff cause I had catalogs And the stuff I was hearing couldn't touch the catalog. So I was confident on my end. So I was like, if she went out and hustled and did all that, that's cool. I'm going to hold down what I put my work into and my hustle into.
4: So, man, as
3: she blew I had a situation come to me, a lucrative situation. So I started putting it together. When they got when she got wind of it, next thing you know, something filed in federal court that I'm stealing music. Boom. That's how all of it that's how everything started trickling. Everything. I didn't know about the uh, marriage situation. You know, in Texas, they got the common law thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you find
4: out you know,
3: all somebody have to do is put your last name down on medical records, on 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 mail coming to your house, anything, and they can claim you as a spouse, and you literally have to fight that in court.
2: So the way that the narrative was spun was that you're the one who was trying to say we're yeah. married. Yeah. So so initially she claimed you as her husband and then once she got on
3: she tried to distance herself. Is that how it went? Well, see, no. What I think is her initial plan was to make that move. This is my opinion. Uh. Was to make that move but other things took place. But it was already there, it was already in the system. You feel what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's when it was discovered by my attorneys, mm-hmm. that that situation was like that. So, and, um, but they made it look like, okay, well, you, you trying to eat off this, you trying to do this. You, it was never that, mm. it ain't even in my character. Yeah,
2: so, Do you own the masters to this day? Those masters that you have of her?
3: Well, we did some in a settlement. We already, I relinquished them through a settlement. Okay, so you got a bag out of the deal. Oh, yeah. Two bags. And they made me, man, I learned so much about the media. I know you know about the media. They can make you look how they want you to look, Mm -hmm. period. And then they'll do that while you at court. So they turn the public opinion and already start like, making you look bad. They already, if, if you go to trial or jury, the jury has already been groomed to who you are, what they think you are. You feel me? So that was a rough time for me because I've been in a lot of fights, but I ain't never been in a fight like that. Mm. That was a heavy one, you know. And when it started hitting home and, 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 and. My kids started talking about it. That's when it really, really, really affected me. So, after all of that, that's why nobody really heard nothing from me. I just, I just pulled back out of everything. But my wife started saying, "You, you have to put your story out there." Yeah, it seems
2: like that you got your winner this time around. Uh, no, she's definitely in your corner. Like I hear a lot of things. That Absolutely. you know, you guys work on together.
4: Y'all really uh, seem like a real team. How did you guys meet? Oh man, um,
3: I met this guy that wanted me to invest into a movie, and uh, it was this steak, say steakhouse restaurant right off of San Felipe, and we walk in right, and soon as we walk in, this dude talking to me or whatever, and I see this tall, beautiful Colombian woman, and I couldn't even hear this dude talking no more, man. She really like caught me off guard. And uh, so we got seated. She was a the hostess there. We got seated, and I asked the, the waiter, I said, man, who is this girl, man? Uh, the waiter was like, forget about her. We all shot our shots. We (laughs) shoot everybody down. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And for me, you know, uh, it ain't my shot. So let me, let me shoot mine, you know? So long story short, you know, I started talking to her and, uh, first thing I noticed, she was different, man. Like I'm, I never been the dude that, uh, that, that was attracted to something that just looks or match everything. I always wanted something authentic, something that I can say, yeah, this is what I have, you know. And she was so different how she looked at life, family, and I'm big on family. So, and we just hit it off,
4: man. And, uh, and you know these uh, uh, um, you know what they say about
3: Colombian women and, and taking care of you and cooking. I wasn't used to that. I wasn't used to being taken care of that good, you feel what I'm saying. So I, I actually used to think she was setting me up because I, w- I wasn't used to being treated so nice, you know but it's so, it was so common and so natural for her.
2: And how long have y'all been together?
3: about 14 years. 14 years now. Uh,
4: Okay. All
2: right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Are you at liberty to tell the
2: story that you told me about in the mall? Which? You
4: were in the galleria and there was some
2: gentlemen in suits. Oh,
4: man. Let me see how I can say that.
3: (sighs) I can say my my father in law is is a, a well respected man, wise man, family man.
4: Um, and uh,
3: he uh he's he sent some friends of his just to check me out to make sure I was who I was supposed to be. Being around his daughter, you know, he knew. He know his daughter's a a beautiful woman. You know, she's been a model ever since she was a kid. And he knows how men uh, come up on him like that. So, you know, and these dudes were were real persuasive in, you know, asking me these questions. They were nice and everything, but he did what I would do, put it that way. But no, I can't can't speak too too much on that. But you know, I can't talk too much on that.
2: You know what? And that's respected. And I want I want these youngsters out here out there to listen and learn. Cause this is what this show is all about information and instructions. You see how he answered that question? Like he gave you something, but he didn't give you anything? <laughs> you dig what I'm saying? <laughs> like that's the way you do it. You know, you 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 know, you have to, you have to carry yourself, man. All you have, you know, you carry yourself in a certain way. All you have is, is, is your balls and your word at the end of the day. All this, all of this material stuff that everybody tripping on, that stuff come and go. At the end of the day, all you have is your balls and your word. And uh, in addition to that, you know, that's what shapes your character. And that's why I wanted to talk to you, man. I really do appreciate you coming in and sharing your story. And just mm-hmm. a, that's a, actually just a glimpse of your story. It's I mean, this guy, me this guy's story. I mean, you could pretty much write about ten books on your life, and each one of those books and each page, each each chapter would be intriguing. So, thank you for coming through, man. How can the people get in touch with you?
3: You can hit me up at Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Enzo Weinberg. That's E N Z O W E I N B E R G. Um, you guys can check out my uh my documentary called When Thugs Fly. It's on Tubi right now, coming to Amazon and other outlets. And uh, I have a book also dropping in the next couple of months called The Blood of Wine. Hmm. Yeah. There it is, fam. I appreciate you once again, man. And,
2: mm. and, and and like I said, man, it was really good to see you, man. Good to see you again. It's been a while. It's been a while, man. Yeah. you looking good yourself. Hey, man, I'm trying to keep up with you. Try to drink me some mineral water. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no more talk. <laughs> This episode was produced by A-King and brought to you by The Black Effect Podcast Network and and iHeartRadio.
0: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee.